Well, my friends, we are in Matthew chapter 2. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we certainly think that you should have one of your own. Um, and at the very least, have one this morning. So if you need a Bible, they're available just outside the door. If you don't own one, please feel free to take it with you. We're moving our way through the book of Matthew. And last week, unfortunately, we weren't able to finish chapter 2. It would have been ideal for us to make our way all the way through the chapter because sort of the ending of the chapter goes with the info in the beginning, but just time didn't permit. So we're going to pick up today in verse 19. And if you were here with us, maybe you weren't, um, so I'll either remind you or inform you that last week we were introduced to some key people, people that are going to come up again and again in the Scripture or key people to the story. So we learned about Mary and Joseph last week. We considered Jesus our Lord. We, we spent some time looking uh, at Him last week, and we'll obviously continue to do that so as we continue to go on. And we also spent some time learning about some people, the wise men, and also a fellow by the name of Herod. Now today, our account is going to pick up with this guy, Herod. And so I'll remind you of a couple of things about him. Remember that Herod was the king, I'll put that in quotation marks, he was the king of Judea. And the reason why I say king is because oftentimes we think of a king as the one that is in charge, the supreme ruler of a particular area of land or a nation or an empire. But in the Roman Empire, the supreme ruler was the, the Caesar. In particular, at the time we're talking about, it was a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. And underneath that supreme ruler, there were various leaders, different regions. They, in this case, they were called kings. And the person that we're talking about is a guy by the name of Herod. He was the king of a region of Israel that was known as Judea, which is the southern portion of the area of Israel. I said a couple of things about Herod. One thing I said is that Herod is not even his real name, it's his title. This fella in history has gone down to be known as Herod the Great. There were other Herods that came after him, so he is distinguished by the title Herod the Great. I also pointed out that Herod the Great was a particularly ruthless and cruel individual. That he was prone to using any means necessary to either get power or to maintain that power. And he would do whatever was necessary to neutralize any threats that came against him. I said a few things about him. I said that he killed, he had his mother-in-law killed. He had his wife killed. He had three of his sons killed because they seemed to be posing a threat against him. Over 300 royal officers during his administration were killed. When he came into power, he had all 70 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, sort of the, the ruling body, if you will, of the Jewish people. He had all 70 of those members killed and replaced with new guys so that he could kind of control those new guys. And then we saw last week that he had all male boys ages two years and younger killed in the city of Bethlehem to neutralize any threat of a king of the Jews coming and sort of overthrowing him. Now today we're going to look at the death of this particular man. But let me give you one more indicator of this guy related to his death that I think reveals his ruthlessness and his cruelty. Knowing that his death was pending, and also knowing that because of the life he lived, nobody would really mourn the fact that he was gone. They would actually cheer the fact that he was gone. What he did was then, in Jerusalem, he had all of the Jewish leaders rounded up again. This is about 37 years after he initially took power. He had all the Jewish leaders rounded up again, put them in prison, and then gave instructions to those that worked for him that on notification of his death, all of those people were to be put to, death, put to death as well. And the reason why he did that, he said, you know what, people may not mourn my death in Jerusalem, but when I die, there will be mourning in Jerusalem, even if it's for another. And so this guy was crazy. I think you could certifiably say that of Herod the Great. He was really out there, and he was a cruel, ruthless individual. Well, last week as we were about to depart, we took notice that Joseph, the guy who would serve as Jesus' earthly father, that he was warned in a dream that he had to leave the area of Bethlehem, that it wasn't safe for him and his family and for Jesus to be there. And so we saw in Matthew chapter 2.13 that he was warned of that, and so he fled as the angel told him. It said, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And obedient to that dream, Joseph fled the Judean city of Bethlehem and he headed south to a new nation altogether, the nation of Egypt. You may recall I pointed out that Egypt was still part of the Roman Empire, but it was under the jurisdiction of a different king, a different tetrarch, a different leader. And so Joseph would be safe, if you will, there in Egypt. And so, suddenly that night, based on this, uh, the instructions of this angel, Joseph takes off. And Matthew reminds us in Matthew 2.15 that that was more than just a practical thing to do. Run for your life and be safe. But even in that process, that God was fulfilling His holy word. And that this idea that the Messiah would move, if you will, to Egypt and come out of Egypt, that that was a fulfillment of prophecy. And so we see Hosea chapter 11, which simply says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And so here's Joseph. Go to Egypt. And Joseph is obedient to do that. He listens to the voice of this angel. The angel said, go to Egypt. And he goes to Egypt. The angel said, stay in Egypt. And Joseph obediently stays in Egypt. And as we're going to see today, eventually the angel will say, it's time for you to leave Egypt. And what does Joseph do? He obediently leaves Egypt. And what that tells us is Joseph is a man whose life is marked by obedience all the time. And that's significant. Was Joseph perfect? Was he without sin? Surely not. But Joseph was a guy, as we learned, who sought to do what, what was right. And if you're going to seek to do what is right, you have to be obedient to what God is leading you to do. And so when God brings that conviction, you have to respond in the affirmative and you have to say yes. Let me ask you this. What if Joseph said yes to going down to Egypt but refused to stay there? Essentially, the angel said, I want you to stay here for a little while. And he said, no, I'm not staying here for a little while. I'm getting out of here. He would have been disobedient in that. He would have been obedient in step one, but not in steps two and three. What if Joseph said yes to going down to Egypt and even staying there for a while, but then deciding, you know, I kind of like it here and not getting up and not leaving. He would have been obedient in step one and in step two, but not in step three. And you know, I know it's extreme to say this, but you might be able to say that the entire plan of God would be at risk of being thwarted because of this man's subsequent disobedience. Lately, I've been talking a lot about the importance of obedience, but you know, I think just as important is this idea of subsequent obedience. It's one thing to be obedient to that initial calling, but if you're not obedient to the second calling or the third calling or the 100th calling, does that initial obedience really matter? Subsequent obedience. And to put it another way, we have to keep saying yes to the leading of God's Holy Spirit every day of our Christian walks until He takes us home. It's about daily obedience. And Joseph demonstrates that for us. Well, let's jump into today's text. Look at verse 19. It says, Now, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. Well, we can learn some interesting things here in this verse based on the fact that Herod died. So you notice again at the beginning of verse 19, Herod dies, and it's because of that death, it's sort of the impetus that says to Joseph, the coast is clear, you can make your way back to Israel. Now historians differ slightly as to the exact date of Herod's death. Sort of the established view, older historians, not so much in age, but in chronology, the established view was that um, Herod died somewhere around the year 4 B.C. More modern historians have, using different information, they've suggested it was perhaps 1 B.C. I think for our purposes it doesn't really matter. We can safely assume it's somewhere between 4 B.C. and 1 B.C. that Herod dies. Now, the reason why I bring this up is this. Jesus was born during the lifetime of Herod. And you remember that he was probably around the age of two or maybe a little bit less than that as far as months are concerned that Herod sent forth some people to have him killed. So that means Jesus was probably born, likely born, as many as two years before Herod died. So my question is this. If Herod dies before Christ, how could Jesus be alive before Herod dies? Is that a contradiction in the Scripture? Should we walk out of here and say, you know what, that faith Christianity thing, it just doesn't make any sense, see? It's all contradictory. Well, the reality is this. Let me, and I, you probably know this. 
You know that we are currently in, well, I'll ask you, what year is it today? This is an easy one, please. Good. One person. Come on, folks. I'm trying to be a little interactive here. So it's 2015 A.D. We very rarely say A.D. And the A.D. comes from the Latin, it, Anno Domini. It means in the year of our Lord. So the idea is this, that 2,015 years ago, Jesus was born. That was year one, the year of our Lord. That's the idea. Now there's no zero. You go from positive one, if you will, right to negative one. And anything before that, anything before the year of our Lord, we refer to as B.C., before Christ. You also will hear B.C.E., before common era. So you have A.D., the positive years, if you will, and B.C., if you want to think of it as sort of a number line, the negative years. So I ask this, if Jesus was alive maybe as much as three years before Herod the Great died, so he was during the same particular time period, then how could Jesus have been born in 1 A.D.? If we know at the latest, Herod died in 1 B.C. I think the reality is this. For some of you are probably thinking, I didn't give it any thought. I didn't really care until you brought it up. You should have just moved on without it. The situation is this. Our calendar system, it doesn't come from our Bibles. Okay? The calendar system came from this, essentially this historian. He was a priest as well, a religious guy, but he was an historian. And he was sort of commissioned by the Pope of that day. At that time, it was called the Holy Roman Seed or the Holy Roman Emperor. So he was a religious leader, the Pope, but he was also sort of a political leader. And in this Pope's mind, it seems reasonable, he thought that the most important event, the central event in the history of the world was the birth of Christ. Therefore, all history should center around that event. So he hires this historian. He says, look, I want you to start doing your research and do the math or whatever, and I want you to find out what year Jesus was born. And this historian gets busy. He does it. He comes back to this Pope, and he says, I got it all figured out. Here's the day Jesus was born. We're going to start that with year one. Everything will be after the year of our Lord. Everything before we'll call B.C. And the Pope's excited, and he calls up the calendar makers, and they get all the pictures of the kittens, and, and they make all these cattens. And everybody knows 2015, or in that day, whatever it happened to they Everybody knows the year that Jesus was born. Now this guy was somewhat, this historian, was somewhat of a, a man of integrity. You know, and he kept pondering things and thinking through things and just not feeling comfortable with his own math. And so he goes back, you know, and reruns the numbers, and he says, man, I'm off. This is embarrassing. And he realizes he's about four years off. And so he goes back to this pope, and he says, look, I hate to say this, and I know the kitten calendars and everything, he said, but I think I'm about four years off. And, and the pope of that day, I don't remember who it was, Gregory, I think, but I don't know for sure. The pope of that day essentially says, what is written is written, or whatever. He said, that's it. We're, we're staying with what it is. And so we know that Jesus was not born on year one, and part of the reason is because of this idea of Herod's death, it doesn't really matter to us. It does, it's not a sort of a black eye in our faith or anything like that because the Bible doesn't mention anything of it nor even try to. But, so I find it interesting that Jesus Himself was actually born before the year of our Lord, if you will. Maybe somewhere around 4 B.C., 3 B.C., 5 B.C., something like that. Alright, something just to tuck away, think about as you Go about your day this particular week. I hope you enjoy. All right, now, Herod dies. And Herod's dead, and the angel, this angel of the Lord, it appears again to Joseph. This is the third time now, that at least, that we learn that an angel came and spoke to this man, Joseph. The angel says to him, essentially, the coast is clear. You see there it says, rise, take up the child. The people that wanted to harm him have died. And, and so Joseph then says, all right, it's time for us to go. We can return to Israel. We don't have any record that the angel says, the coast is clear, I want you to go back to Bethlehem, or I want you to go to Jerusalem, or, or anywhere in particular. It seems that that was sort of left up to Joseph. What we do know was told to Joseph was that there was a fellow by the name of Archelaus that was ruling in place of Herod the Great. Archelaus was one of the two sons, so when Herod the Great died, his kingdom, if you will, was divided up amongst three leaders. One was this son, Archelaus. Another was another son, and then one of his daughters also. And those three would then begin to rule over different portions of what was Herod the Great's kingdom. There was another fellow by the name of Antipas. He would rule up in the, in the Galilee region. 
So be reminded of this. I told you that Israel is kind of divided up into three regions. Think of a rectangle. The bottom portion is Judea. The middle portion is Samaria. The northern portion would be the area of Galilee. And this guy, Archelaus, is going to rule over the area down here of Judea. And he was just like his dad, essentially. Murdering people for the sake of murdering people to neutralize any threat. He was cruel. And so here is Joseph. He's coming back. He's told that Herod the Great has died. And he's warned that Archelaus is ruling over this area in the south. And so he pretty much says, we'll cross that off the list. We're not going to Bethlehem. We're not going to Jerusalem. We're not going anywhere in the area of Judea. Because he's just as crazy as his dad was. And so then Joseph decides to go to the area of Nazareth, which is all the way up in the northern region or in the Galilee region of Israel. You may recall that from our study earlier, our first study, that Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth. That's where it was revealed to Mary that she was going to be with child. That's where it was revealed to Joseph that that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. You should take her to be your wife and so on. And so perhaps leading a little bit to this decision to go back to Nazareth is that they're from Nazareth. They got family in Nazareth. They have instant babysitters in Nazareth, you know, when the couple wants to go out and have a date night and things like that. And so they decide they're going to go back to Nazareth. But it's rather interesting. I would submit to you that Nazareth may not be the best location to bring up the Son of God, if you will, to bring up God's Messiah. Because Nazareth was a town that had a reputation. You know how there's certain towns that have a reputation? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, there are. Like Las Vegas. Who would like to take their family on a nice vacation to Las Vegas? Yeah, I understand they have things for the kids now. But most of us in our mind, we have thoughts of what Las Vegas is going to be like and what it's going to be about. I think they even call it Sin City. I was thinking they should have a church there called Calvary Chapel Sin City or something like that. I thought that would be awesome. You know, we want to reach the lost or whatever. You know, but towns can get a reputation. Nazareth had a reputation. And the reputation was such that you wouldn't think it the natural place to bring up the Messiah. Nazareth was known for being... People that lived in Nazareth were thought to be sort of of the lower rung of society. They were thought to be uncultured. They were thought to have a low level of intelligence. You may recall in John chapter 1, one of Jesus' early disciples... I don't even know if you would classify him as a disciple yet. A guy that was looking at Jesus and said, this guy's really something. Very early on in the stages. And he goes and finds a friend. The man's name is Philip. He goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says, you need to come and find this guy. You've got to see this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. You've got to hear him teach. He said, could this be the Messiah? Well, Nathaniel heard Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, no, he can't be God's Messiah. He responded, he didn't say that exactly, but he responds and he said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? The answer was pretty clear, no. Why would God's Messiah come out of Nazareth? That doesn't make any sense. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to hold a person in contempt, if you wanted to put a person down, you would either call them a Nazarene or you would say something to this effect. What are you, from Nazareth? That was a put down. No, I'm not from Nazareth. What are you saying about me? You see? And so Nazareth was this place that had a reputation. And I find it so perfectly predictive of the ministry that Christ would have that He would be raised in His hometown, if you will, would be Nazareth. Because ultimately, you look at it and you say, how humble of our Lord to, to associate Himself with that which is lowly. And it's a magnificent indicator of the ministry that Jesus was assuming as he humbled himself and he became obedient, ultimately even to the point of death on a cross. And so Jesus and his family, they'll make their way back to Nazareth, and that is where Jesus is going to be raised. Now notice one other point Matthew makes. If you look at Matthew 2.23, it says, and this was spoken by the, pro by the prophets, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he should be called a Nazarene. So Joseph may be thinking, Let's go somewhere safe away from Archelaus. Joseph and Mary might be deducing Nazareth will be perfect. We'll have babysitters. Aunt so-and-so is still up there and, and so forth. But remember this, the purpose of Matthew's writing is to demonstrate to his Jewish readers that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. 
So Joseph and Mary might just think practically this is the best place to go. But in reality, God is at work here moving the chess pieces around so that His Holy Word could be accomplished. And Matthew, as we saw there, he points out that this was a fulfillment once again of the prophecies of old. This is now about the sixth time, at least, in the first couple of chapters of Matthew that we are seeing prophecies specifically fulfilled that are related to God's Messiah. Now, here's a question. What Scripture here in Matthew 2.23, I believe it is, what Scripture here can we go back to in the Old Testament that is specifically being fulfilled? Or where does it say that God's Messiah will be called a Nazarene? And the answer is this. There actually isn't a Scripture. Now, for some people, that causes quite a bit of concern. But let me try to just sort of explain through this. So we have taken notice, Matthew's job is to show from the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. So in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew points out that Jesus would be born of a virgin and tells us that's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. Then in Matthew chapter 2, the first verse, he points out that he was born in Bethlehem. And he says that was a fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. Then he says that the family would flee down to Egypt. That's Matthew 2.15. And he says that fulfills the prophet Hosea. Chapter 11.1. Now we're told that he should be called a Nazarene. So the pattern seems pretty straightforward. Great. Tell me where it says that in the Old Testament. And the problem is this. That there is no Old Testament prophecy that says that. And so we have to ask the question, we're students of the Word, did Matthew get it wrong? Did Matthew think it was a prophecy when in reality it wasn't a prophecy? And I hope you know me enough by now to know I don't believe that Matthew got it wrong. So let me explain what I, what I mean by this. And what I would like to do in explaining this to you is this. Notice the slight variation in what I'm about to read to you. Okay? Matthew chapter 1, 22, it said this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew 2.5 says, And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Matthew 2.17 said, And then was fulfilled what was spoken by, Jer- by the prophet Jeremiah. Now listen to Matthew 2.23 because it says this, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Do you sl- see the slight difference, a slight variation between the first three and the last one? It's a variation of only one letter, actually. I'll point it out again. Matthew 1.22, spoken by the prophet. Matthew 2.5, written by the prophet. Matthew 2.17, spoken by the prophet. And Matthew 2.23, spoken by the prophets. You see, that I tried to emphasize that the difference is the letter S. And it's a very subtle distinction. You can kind of read through it rather quickly and not necessarily pay any attention to it, but it is an important distinction. Because when Matthew says, or the other writers will say, that it is spoken or written by the prophet, they are referring back to a specific prophet. Which means you can go back in your Bibles and find the specific verse that they are talking about. But when something is spoken or written by the prophets, it's pointing to a general message. And that is the idea, sort of, if you will, the theme of their messages. And so to say that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, that was not meant to denote where he would live as much as the contempt that he would receive. Because again, remember, that's how people looked at this idea of a person from Nazareth. And that idea of the contempt that the Messiah would receive, that's the repeated testimony of the prophets. I'll give you some examples. The the prophet Isaiah. He said that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. Psalm 22, it declares this, that he would be perceived as a worm of a man and that he would be scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Psalm 118 would refer to him as the stone that the builders rejected. So in saying, spoken by the prophets, Matthew's not pointing to a specific prophet as much as he is the overall theme of the prophets. That the Messiah would be despised that he would be rejected, that he would be held in contempt by the very people that he came to save. And it's no different in our day, is it? 
And most of you here probably, you love the Lord Jesus. You're grateful for salvation and things like that. But the vast majority of people that we come into contact with and the vast majority of people that have lived on the earth have despised and rejected and held in contempt the Lord Jesus and the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this idea that He would be from Nazareth is not so much that that's where He would live, but more so that He would be a despised, rejected, and held in contempt person. Contempt, uh, contemptuous person. Or one that was held in contempt. It's interesting though that He does live in Nazareth. You just see, I don't know, just a little smile on the Lord's face. I'll show them. And so He has Him go and live in Nazareth. Now let's move on into chapter 3. Notice what it says. It says, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by, of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now the passage begins by saying, it says, in those days. Now you could either take that in those days of chapter 2, or those days that we're going to talk about from now on from chapter 3. And that's how we're going to take it. Chapter 2 to chapter 3, there's an interval of time of almost 30 years that takes place. And it's during those 30 years that Jesus grows up. He's a kid, and then he grows up to a teenager, and eventually uh, develops into his, his 20s as a man, and so on. Jesus doesn't begin his public ministry until he's about 30 years of age. The last thing that we know of him coming out of Egypt that could have occurred when he was five years of age. So we have a period of about 25 years or maybe even more that we don't have much recorded in the Scripture. We don't know much about Jesus' childhood. We know a little bit from Luke that when he was 12, he went down to the temple with his, his parents, that his parents lost him. Can you imagine? They lost the Messiah. Uh, and they come and they eventually find him. We know that. Luke chapter 2.40 says this about Jesus, just a statement about his early years. It says, And the child grew... And he became strong, and he was filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. So we know that. He's growing up. He's a good little guy. He's doing what he needs to do. He's growing in favor with God and man. We learn this from later on in Luke 2. This is after his parents lost him and then found him in the temple. It says this, And he went down with them, Jesus went with his parents, from Jerusalem back to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's pretty much all we know about the childhood of Jesus. It's all the Bible gives us. Now in our day, people are discovering all sorts of texts about the lost years of Jesus. There's a popular one out that is referred to as the Gospel of Thomas. So you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These were early disciples either of Jesus or they were disciples of disciples of Jesus. And they wrote about Him. And we know that there was a guy by the name of Thomas who was a disciple of Jesus. And so there's this book that is out there, this manuscript that is out there. It's called The Gospel of Thomas. And in The Gospel of Thomas, it tells us all sorts of things that happened in Jesus' early years. That Jesus would go out into sort of the fields and the birds would come and kind of land on His finger and He would talk to the birds and they could talk back to Him and, you know, and He was interacting with His creation and, and all these sorts of things. Does that sound a bit fanciful to you? that sound like the record of the Scriptures, completely different from the record of the Scriptures. But people will argue, well, hey, Matthew was a disciple of his, so who's to say that Thomas, a disciple of his, didn't know just some other things about him? Gospel of Thomas will talk about sort of these miracles that Jesus did, sort of to benefit himself. You know, so he's in his room, and you know, rather than getting up and going over to get whatever he had to get, he would just, you know, Star Wars kind of thing, you know, and use the Force kind of stuff. And it would talk about these fanciful ideas that the Bible doesn't give any indication of. Here's an interesting thing about the Gospel of Thomas. There was a man by the name of Thomas who lived with Jesus. We call him Doubting Thomas, the poor guy. But the Gospel of Thomas, the earliest known manuscript of it, came about 200 years after Jesus. And obviously after Thomas himself. And so the disciple of Jesus didn't even write that manuscript. They just used that name. It's not accurate. It's not something you should give any way to, uh, to, the biblical record makes it very clear that we don't have much information about the early years of Jesus. I think we can ascertain a few things here and there. We know his dad was a carpenter, that he sort of worked alongside of his earthly father. But all of this weird, I'll call it hocus-pocus type stuff, the Bible gives no indication of those things. I would suggest to you 
that Jesus never did a miracle until His earthly ministry began. That He lived a normal, earthly life during that time. And that's why it's interesting to read that the Lord uh, is pleased with Him even though we didn't do any of those things. And we'll talk about that more when we come to it next week. The biblical record is this, that Jesus returned home with His parents, He submitted Himself to their leadership, and He grew in wisdom and stature, developing as a boy, and then eventually in time as a man. And so certainly there's a lesson for young people. Most young people are pretty convinced they're smarter than their parents. Right? few of you, uh, no comment. I have no comment to make on that. Talk to me later when my mom's not next to me or whatever. Most young people think they're pretty much smarter than their parents. Jesus was smarter than his parents. Jesus was a better moral figure and example than his parents, and yet he still submitted to his parents. It's the natural order of things, and it's what God would have you to do if you're a young person. Well, now, chapter 3. We come now in chapter 3 to the public ministry of Jesus' earthly life. You know that a lot of people refer to, as Jesus, refer to Jesus as rabbi or teacher. A teacher in that day wouldn't become a teacher until they were about 30 years of age. So we estimate that Jesus was about 30 years old. This is how we come up with the idea that Jesus died when He was 33. Because as you read through the Gospels, you see there are three Passovers that take place. And if there's three Passovers that take place and He started His ministry when He was 30, then He has to move toward being age of 33. But again, nowhere in the Bible does it specifically say that. But we estimate that Jesus was about 30 when He began His earthly ministry. And the rest of the text that we're going to read in the book of Matthew is going to look at His earthly ministry. Now, to get there, Matthew's going to start sort of with the backstory. And the backstory involves a guy and a ministry of that guy, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And so I read it, but we'll read it again. It says, In those days, John the Baptist... He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Notice his message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken, this is Matthew's words, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. Now John the Baptist, most of us know his name. He's a leading figure in the Scripture. He's not found that much in the pages of Scripture. Maybe referenced in about five different chapters of the Bible. But John the Baptist is this leading guy. You'll notice what Matthew does. He immediately points out that this John the Baptist is a fulfillment of the Scriptures. Matthew has already told us, or at least our study of Matthew has already told us, some of the circumstances of this guy coming on the scene that his, just like Jesus, his conception was miraculous. Not in the sense of a virgin birth, but in his case that his mother, it says she was advanced in years. Her name is Elizabeth. She was advanced in years and that she had been barren during all of those years essentially. We don't know exactly, but historians estimate that she was in her 60s and she conceives that her husband, a priest, he goes into the temple and the angel comes there and reveals to them that his wife is going to be pregnant. And that guy, his name was Zechariah. The angel says, your prayers have been answered. I think it's so significant to point out, how long do you think Zechariah and Elizabeth were praying for this child? You think they just started praying when they turned 50? Probably not. When they turned 40? Possibly. 30? 35? At some point, if they got married at the age of, let's just say, 20, at some point, four, five, six, seven years, they probably began to get worried that we're trying and nothing's happening and no one is conceived, or Elizabeth is not conceiving. And so they go through this process here of praying and praying and praying. And I wonder if they gave up praying. I would think if I hit 60 and my wife hit 60 and we hadn't had a child, we would probably come to the conclusion that it's not going to happen. And this angel comes and speaks to Joseph and, and says, your prayers have been answered. And so... He finds out that his wife is pregnant. We also know this about John the Baptist. John's dad, Zechariah, was a priest. Which means that John comes from a priestly line. It essentially means that his career path is chosen for him. He too will go on someday to become a priest. It is interesting to see though that John sort of rejects the priestly ministry and instead takes on a prophetic ministry. Now, on that day, a priest, I told you, he couldn't become a priest or start serving as a priest until what year? 
to 30. I think I heard somebody over here say it. Very good. You get a bonus point. Alrighty. But at the age of 20, they would begin to go and sort of seriously prepare for the day they became 30. And some have suggested, there's some historical record for this, that John went into the wilderness when he was about 20 years old. Sort of left, I don't know where he lived, let's say he lived in a town like Nazareth, that he left sort of the town and city living, and he went and he lived in the wilderness from the age of 20 to about the age of 30, and then he begins his ministry, this prophetic ministry, at the age of 30. We don't really know. But we do see that he rejects sort of that priestly ministry and takes on the role of a prophet. We know that John was the first prophetic voice that the children of Israel heard in over 400 years. The last prophet being the prophet Malachi. It recorded for us. And we learn that when John comes to break the prophetic silence, that he does so for the purpose of serving as a forerunner of the Messiah. So look at again at verse 3. Matthew points this out. He says, this is a fulfillment of the prophecies. This is the one that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. We saw that Luke, that in Luke, the angel revealed to Zechariah that his wife was going to conceive. And this is what the angel said at that time, that this baby is going to grow up and he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people that are prepared. That's quite a prophecy of this kid's life, isn't it? This kid was going to go on to be quite a fellow. That's, that's quite a bit of expectation surrounded around this guy. You know, that sort of expectation and the ministry of John led to a little bit of confusion as to who this guy really was. So in John's day, we have recorded for us in the Gospels, there were many that thought that John was actually the Old Testament prophet Elijah. You may recall from your study of the Old Testament that Elijah never died. But rather, God took Elijah. That's the scene that is called the chariots of fire. That Elijah was sort of taken off the scene, never died. And there's a prophecy, there are prophecies, I just shared it with you, that speak of the Messiah, or excuse me, the prophet coming before the Messiah. And there was this thinking that Elijah was going to come back in a chariot, if you will, and come back on the scene as the forerunner of the Messiah. Many people were convinced that John was that guy. That he was Elijah come back in the flesh. There were others that thought that John himself was the long-awaited Messiah. Not that he was a forerunner, not that he was Elijah, but that he himself was the Messiah. Which is a conclusion that John was very quick to point out. No, I'm not him. I'm not even unworthy. I'm not even worthy to unlash uh, his sandal. I'm not him. There's one that is coming after me. Jesus would say this about John. Just trying to paint the picture of this guy. Jesus would say this. He said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So once again, quite a fellow. John is even referred to as the greatest of all of the prophets that ever lived. So John is quite a guy. John's ministry, as we'll see, this is my intro, by the way, so this doesn't count as part of the study. All right, just so everybody knows. John's ministry was a ministry of repentance and that was symbolized or if you could say he specialized in baptism as a sign of that repentance. That's why he's referred to as John the Baptist. We know that John was rather peculiar, quite frankly, in his selection of clothing and in his daily diet. Look at verse 4. It says that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist so he just sort of threw this smock thing over him and zipped it up, tied it up there with a little leather belt. His daily diet, notice it says, was food. Uh, his food was locust and wild honey. Now, if you've ever been around a camel, when we go to Israel, we, we all climb up on a camel. We take like a 10-minute ride or whatever when we get back down. If you, if you touch a camel's hair, it is very unpleasant. There's nothing nice about it. You wouldn't pet a camel or whatever like that other than to say, I pet a camel. Or whatever. It's very uncomfortable. And here's John wearing this camel's hair garment around him. Some of you might say, I think I would like to do that. Okay, how about eat locust with wild honey? 
Right? The wild honey makes the locust taste a little better. It goes down a little bit easier. John decides to do that as well. That's weird, folks. It's odd. It's peculiar. It's nutritious. It'll get you by, but it's not something that I would choose. Uh, it seems again that John is coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And we know that Elijah essentially did the same thing. This is what it says in 2 Kings. It says, there's two people talking. It says, they answered him, he, Elijah, wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And it's the idea that he wore sort of a camel's hair clothing as well. Now that's not meant to imply that if you want to be a prophet of God or you are a prophet of God, you have to dress weird and eat weird things. That's not the idea here. The point, though, is this, that both Elijah and John ministered to the community around them without even spoken words this idea of the need for self-renunciation. Their clothing choices, John's eating habits, they were in a sense a silent rebuke to the worldliness of those that were around them. And particularly, the worldliness of the religious leaders. So in John's day, in Jesus' day, if you were a religious leader in Jerusalem, you had a pretty good gig. You were pretty set. You had nice clothing, fancy clothing. Your job was pretty straightforward. It was pretty easy. When, pe- when you walked down the street, people sort of pulled it aside, took their hat off to honor you and all those sorts of things. It's pretty easy to be a religious leader in John's day. And John, just with the clothing and the food that he um, is eating and so on, it's a silent rebuke against them, if you will, to put aside their worldliness. And the reason why is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's no more time for games. It's no more time for playing around. And again, John's ministry was calling people to repent, to prepare themselves because the Messiah was at hand. He was coming. And a tangible sign of that repentance is that people would be baptized. So look at verse 5 of the chapter. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all of the region about the Jordan, they were going out to Him and they were baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by Him. Now, we're familiar with baptism. In the Christian church, we continue to practice the rite of baptism as I believe we should. The Jews were also familiar with baptism. But as John's name, as John's name implies, he was the Baptist, which means what he was doing, even though they were familiar with the idea of baptism, he was doing something that was unusual to the culture as a whole. The Jews practiced baptism, but it was primarily reserved for Gentiles. It was for Gentiles that were proselytes to Judaism coming into the Jewish faith. They were baptized. They were essentially putting to death their Gentile roots and they were taking on Jewish roots in a sense. And so baptism that they were familiar with was reserved for the Gentiles. Out with the old, the Gentile, and in with the new, the Jew. There was also a similarity with baptism to the Jewish practice of the ritual baths. And so when the Jew would go to the temple... Not so sure about the synagogue, but when they would go to the temple, they would go to this place, they would strip of the, the men, they would strip of their outer garden, they would go down into this bath. You can go you can see it in Jerusalem today, it's been archaeologically discovered. They would go down into this bath, ritually cleanse themselves, then they would come up a different set of stairs, be giving a new garment, and they would go into the temple and they would worship. So very similar to the idea of baptism. Uh, they, so they were familiar with that. So this wasn't completely foreign to them what John was doing. But what was unique in what John was doing was that he was presenting this to the Jews and the Jews were presenting themselves. Baptism had been reserved for the dirty Gentiles. They didn't think too highly of Gentiles. And baptism was reserved for them. But here now are Jews presenting themselves to be baptized, not just as part of some ritual, but as a response to the conviction that was on their heart based on John's call to repentance. So in John 1, we learn that John told the people, make straight the way of the Lord. And it seems as if people responded. They said, well, how do we do that? And then we put together Mark chapter 1. He responds, it seems, he said, by being baptized for the repentance of your sins. So we have to ask ourselves, does baptism save people? If John said, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, is that to imply that baptism can save a person. That unless a person goes under the water, that they can't be forgiven of their sins. Does the washing of the water cleanse them in any way of their sins? The answer to all of those is no. 
just as in baptism in our day cannot save a person. And so whether we're talking about John's baptism or we're talking about the Christian form of baptism in our day, baptism can't save anyone. Baptism is merely a sign. So in the Christian's case, it's a sign of the work that Christ has already done in our lives. That we have been crucified with Christ. That we have died with Christ. That we have been buried with Christ. And that we've been raised to newness of life with Christ. That's what baptism speaks of in the case of the Christian. In John's case, this washing was a visible act demonstrating the preparation of the heart that the person had already undergone for the coming of God's Messiah. And so it was again, it was a sign. John's baptism was a sign of the repentance that the people were already undergoing in their hearts. And baptism, or excuse me, this idea of repentance, repentance is a word that we, we might hear in the church setting, but we don't hear it a lot in our society. You, pr- you pretty much only hear it at a street corner where there's a guy with a sandwich board that is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or something like that. Or you go to the boardwalk with people like Kevin and Kevin stands there on the boardwalk witnessing the kids. And you might hear people saying, you need to repent. And people, for a lot of the kids, it becomes a game until they get into the conversation and then God begins to convict their hearts. But we've, we don't really hear a lot of this idea of repentance. And so I think it's important that we clarify what we're talking about when we say repent. Repentance certainly is this. It is more than a feeling. Repentance is more than being remorseful over your sins and your wrongdoings. Because repentance, every time it's presented in the Scripture, repentance involves a change of heart. Repentance involves a change of mind. And I think just as significant as those other two things, repentance involves a change of direction. So repentance is far more than just being sorrowful about our sin, but it's doing something about that sorrow. John would say this in verse 8. He would say, Matthew 3.8, he would say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So you couple that with his opening words in verse 2. And John begins by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. You see that? It's more than just being sorrowful, but there's an action that has to go with it. John's message was this, the king is coming. And it's time to remove anything from your life that would hinder his kingship in your life. Now think about that statement. The king is coming, and it's time for you to remove anything in your life that would hinder his kingship in your life. Is that not a message we still need to hear today? Friends, it's exactly the message that we need to hear today. Because we know that our king is coming. And he's coming quickly. And whether it's Him coming forth in the clouds and calling us home, or it's us coming to the end of our days here on the earth, He's coming quickly. No doubt, everyone in this room within 70 or 80 years is going to be dead if the Lord doesn't come before that. He's coming quickly. And any one of us that are 40, 45 years old, we know how fast that goes. And how did I get to this point in my life? I'm 45 years old, 55 years old. It goes quickly. And the King is coming for you one way or the other. And if that is the case, it's time to put aside anything else that hinders us from running the race. I love how it talks about in Hebrews. It says, take anything that ensnares you, entangles you, weighs you down. All of those analogies work for the text that is there. And lay them aside so that you can run the race. Run it in such a way that you can win the race, it says. And we look at our lives, and as Christians, I don't know about you. I do know about you. I know enough about you, and I know enough about me. But in our lives, there are so many things that come our way that sort of distract us. That take our eyes off of heaven and put our eyes around here on the earth. And suddenly we begin to develop this idea that my life is about me. Or we develop this idea that my life is about what is around me. When in the reality of things, your life isn't about you. It's about Him. And secondly, your life isn't about what is around you because that is passing away. But it's about that which is going to last eternally. And so, we need to be a people that recognize that the King is coming, and honestly, we need to remove anything from our lives that hinder His kingship in our lives. We don't like to think about repentance. I can say that because I don't like to think about repentance. I don't want God to reveal an area of my life 
that is displeasing to him. I want him to, when I wake up in the morning, I want him to say, you know, Greg, if more of my kids were like you, this would be great. But the reality is, as I walk with the Lord, and I come into His presence, and I go about my day thinking about the things of the Lord, the things I read about in the morning, or something I hear on the radio, whatever, the reality is, the Lord puts an area, His finger on an area of my life. And He says, Greg, essentially says this, He says, you know what? Great job yesterday. Today's a new day. And I want to transform you into the image of my son. And so, Greg, here's the next area. And he works with us and he brings us through that process. Now, repentance, we oftentimes think of repentance as running to the front of the the church when the pastor gives the message and who wants to repent of their sins and come to know Jesus? And we think repentance is associated with coming to Jesus and having salvation. But the reality is repentance continues on every day that we walk with the Lord. And repentance is more than just, I'm not going to do that sin anymore. Or I'm going to say I'm sorry for that sin and forsake it and walk away. But repentance is a change of thinking. So if my thinking is that my life is all about me, I need to repent of that thinking. If my thinking is my life is all about getting comfortable here on the earth for the remaining days of my life, I need to repent of that thinking. I need to change my mind and I need to change my actions. I need to walk in a new way. And so that, in that sense, every one of us, every day of our walks with Jesus, we need to be continually about repenting. It's not just about the sinner coming to salvation, but it's about us saying, you know what, Lord? You're right. I've wasted so many of my adult years, so many of my teen years, chasing after things that aren't going to be around after the fact. I've wasted it, Lord. And you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. You're right, Lord. That's the idea of repentance. And then when we move forward and we walk a different path, that's repentance. Now, our natural man doesn't like to hear that. Our society we live in doesn't like to hear that. And sadly, many of our churches don't like to preach that. I even heard one preacher essentially say this. When somebody asked him, how come you don't talk about repentance? How come you don't talk about sin? His response was simply this. He said, I prefer to focus on the positive and stay away from all the negative. And I I hear what the guy is saying, but I would have to ask this question, is it even possible to have a Gospel message without some talk of sin and repentance? I I don't think it is. I don't think you're really giving the Gospel unless there's some talk of sin and repentance. You know, it's significant to note this. That every time that the Gospel is introduced, the ministry of the Gospel is introduced in the New Testament, every time that it is, it begins with a call to repentance. I think that's very significant. Let me take you through some of these very, very quickly. We already saw John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3-2. What are his words? He begins, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He begins with repentance. Jesus, when he begins his preaching ministry, he's sent out into the wilderness, he's tempted for 40 days, He comes back and He begins His preaching ministry. This is what Matthew 4.17 says. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's another one. When Jesus will commission His disciples. He had a group of people that were following them. He's teaching them. A few months goes by and He finally sends them out on their first outreach opportunity. Their first mission trip, if you will. And He sends them out. And it says this of when He sent them out. It says, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. First time they go out to preach, their message is essentially people need to repent. Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had risen from the dead, He calls back His disciples one more time. Reveals to them sort of the things that were hidden from their eyes, that He had to die, He had to suffer on behalf of their sins, that He rose again and He was going to ascend and disappear from sort of earthly sight there. And it's in that moment, Luke chapter 24, He commissions them. He says, so I'm not going to be here anymore. This is what you need to do. And it says this, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and He said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. You catching the pattern? Everybody begins with that Uh, directive, teach and preach repentance. Acts chapter 2. This is the first day of the church. It's the day of Pentecost, if you will. And Pastor Peter gets up 
And he preaches this long sermon and he takes them all the way through the Old Testament and showing how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. And he brings them to that aha moment at the end. This is the, what it's all about. I've been telling you all those things because I wanted to bring you to this place. This is how you must respond to what I just shared. And what does he say in Acts chapter 2.38? He says to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So my point is this. You don't really have a Gospel message unless there is mention of sin and of turning from that sin. And quite frankly, that makes us uncomfortable. Our flesh doesn't like to hear that. I just want to be told, you know, clean this area, clean that area, but overall you're doing pretty well. Keep up the good work. But the reality is, we need to hear sometimes things that are hard to hear. And we need to know the problem so that we'll seek the solution. Our problem is sin. The solution is repentance from that sin. And the kingdom of heaven, according to John, is at hand. We're going to talk more about the kingdom of heaven the next time we're together. The kingdom of heaven essentially refers to Jesus and the ways of Jesus. And he says that they are at hand. And the prophet John says, since they are as close to you as your hand is to your face, since that is the case, it's time for you, it's time for the children of Israel to get rid of anything in their lives that would hinder them from taking possession of that kingdom. And I want to close with this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand in our day as well. And the Lord has come and He's made Himself known. And the Lord, if you're walking with Him, you know He continues to make Himself known in your life in our lives and in the lives of those that have yet to begun a relationship with Him. He's continuing to work. And our response to that, since the kingdom of heaven is at hand, our response to that has to be, if we're going to be obedient to the Scripture and what God is trying to accomplish, it has to be this. First, readying yourself for that revealing. Putting aside anything that would hinder your ability to hear from Him as He seeks to reveal Himself and His will in your life. And then secondly, responding to that conviction of sin that that revealing is going to bring. Believe me, when the light shines into our hearts, it's going to expose areas of darkness. Is there any doubt about that? The closer we come to the Lord, He's going to reveal areas that you had no idea about. And He's just going to shine that spotlight on it and you need to respond. I need to respond to that and say, you know what, Lord, you're right. I can't believe I didn't see this after all of those years. But you are actually right, and I put it aside. It's acknowledging your sin, it's forsaking your sin, and then it's showing forth fruit of that repentance. And what that means is walking anew. That's the Gospel message. Now there's more to it. We're going to talk about Jesus and Him giving His life for us. But that's the Gospel message. Repenting for the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. It was John's message. It was Jesus' message. It was the Apostles' message. And it needs to be our message as well. Not just the message we preach here from the pulpit, but the message that we speak into our own hearts on a daily basis. Repent of your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you agree with that with me? Yeah? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. And we know, Lord, that this is a challenging message. Lord, we don't want to repent. We'll repent of those things that we don't want anything to do with anymore. I don't want a hangover anymore. I repent of hangovers, Lord. Well, that's an easy thing for us to repent of. But Lord, there are the hard things our selfishness, our pursuing our own way, our doing our own thing. Lord, not submitting ourselves to others. Lord, all those things that You're calling us to repent of as well. Lord, that's a little more challenging. That gets a little more to the root of who we are as beings. And Lord, that's uncomfortable. But Father, we know that You desire very, very good things for Your children. Lord, You do have a future and You do have a hope for us. Lord, we thank You for the gift of Your Spirit. Lord, how remarkable that You've given us Your Holy Spirit residing in the hearts of those that believe and that Your Spirit You refer to as the One that comes alongside. You refer to Him as the Teacher and the Counselor. Lord, that He guides us and He directs us and He ministers into our heart. Essentially saying, as Isaiah says, that this is the way that you should walk. Walk ye there in it. And Lord, then you leave it with us. It's our responsibility to say yes or no. Lord, I'm so grateful for the gift of Your Spirit. And Father, I pray that we would have hearts that are in tune with Your leading. 
And Lord, that You'd make us to be, You'd cause us to be more like a Joseph. Obeying, Lord, again and again and again, every step of the way, so that Your will might be accomplished in our lives, Lord. Father, it's in those things I'm convinced. Lord, that that, those good things You have for us are found. And so, Father, in Your mercy and in Your grace right now, I just humbly ask, Lord, that You would cause Your Spirit to fall on this place and fall on our hearts. And Lord, You'd bring each one of us sort of individually into Your holy presence. And Lord, that You would do Lord a holy work here in our hearts. You'd put Your finger on an area, Lord, or many areas. And You'd prompt us in such a way that we cannot leave this place unless we have responded, Lord, to You. Lord, we, we believe that's a prayer according to Your will. And Lord, expectantly we pray that You might do that. In Jesus' name, Amen.